Amen. 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 You know, one of the one of the um, most um, mo- most most intricate subjects that it took me a long time to really hear anyone talk about was church leadership. Church leadership was one of those subjects, really, that I, I really kind of always I would look in the Bible and then I would look at um, different. Um, saints that I would gather with, and I would always be confused about what the Bible seemed to say about what leadership should look like, character-wise, qualification-wise, um, practice, and even and even some level, some level structure. Because I don't think the Bible gives us um, uh, uh, the, every um, crossing every T and dotting every I about every little detail about leadership. But I do think God blesses us with a general format of what leadership should look like. And if you go to different churches, I know for many, you'll go some places and they'll have a bishop there. They'll go to, you'll go to another spot. You know, they'll have a pastor with associates. You go to another spot, it's a pastor with deacons um, and associates. You go to another spot, they'll just have elders and there'll be no lead, no lead. I mean, so, so, so it's easy to come into the body and come into the church and really be kind of confused about leadership. And I, I really didn't get to hear really anything about church leadership Wow. For almost 12 years when I was in ministry, I had never heard anyone preach on church leadership. I, <clears throat> I heard about everything else, getting blessings. I heard about marriage. I heard about family. I even heard about finances. Great, 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 great things. But one of the things that I, that I really never heard anything taught about for the church is church leadership. And next week, we are going to be appointing four elders next week. <clears throat> We're going to be appointing four elders next week, and, and, and we're very, very excited about these families. We're excited about these men. We, we're excited about the role that they're going to play in helping this flock go to the next place that God wants us to go through in relation to spiritual depth. I think that's a, that's a great need for us. And those of you who have been with us for any amount of time, <coughs> got a frog right there. It's gone now. Praise God. It was just sitting there. Um, and, and, and if you've been with us any amount of time, you know that even before we launched, before Epiphany Fellowship began, one of the things that we said is that we wanted to appoint elders about two to three years in. <laughs> For the most part, all of our, all the people that have kind of been walking with us and helping us through the process of church planting say, you want to wait a minimum of three years after you launch to be able to see where people are able to be and what are their activities among the community beyond their giftedness. And so we're right here on the crust of that opportunity, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm extremely excited about that. So today, we're going to talk about an interesting subject. We're going to talk about, the first this week, we're going to talk about the characteristics of a pastor. Um, and then next week, we're going to talk about the practices of a pastor, so this week we're going to talk about the, 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 the character. What, what is the internal DNA and matrix and soul of a pastor? What, what, should, what, should, this, what should this person has, have that leads God's people? What, what should be their DNA? What, what does God say that their matrix should be? What, what, what should they be like? And, and, and how should the people of God view them and look for that in the lives of the leaders. But not only that, you know, it's interesting that, um, that there's many scriptures, it, it start, it start, like the idea of eldership began such a long, 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 long time ago. Elders were a part of many, 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 many cultures. <clears throat> However, I'll talk to you about later that culture didn't start. I'll show you how eldership was God's idea first before it was anybody's idea. We'll talk about that at the end. Um, it didn't start with human cultures. Um, but, but, but human cultures did have an idea of eldership, but it's not the same type of eldership we're talking about. The eldership we're going to talk about, that, that, that they kind of had was just as you as a head of a household, you know, like my dear, um, you, know, um, um, you know, granny mama, I don't know what you call your grandma, but you know how the spiritual headship, and it's bad in our communities, many times the woman is the spiritual head and gatherer of the family. Um, 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 but, but, but in ancient culture, it was the men who had the role as leader who would kind of take on that role as patriarch and matriarch 
um, for the family or for the entire household and extended family that they would look to, and that person would be called an elder. However, in, in, in Genesis, um, I mean, actually in Exodus, God solidified eldership, spiritual eldership, through your man Moses. And so Moses, of course, was trying to do all the work by himself with two million people. Now, I don't even, like, I'm trying to figure out <coughs> him sitting on the stoop all day long trying to judge two million people's issues by himself. Now, Pops ain't even in the faith. You know, father-in-law wasn't even in the faith. You know, maybe, maybe not. And he was just like, yeah, uh, come here, young buck, come here. Even though he was old at that time, too, so I can't imagine how old his father-in-law was. But he came up to him and said, yo, what you're doing is not a good thing. You need to appoint men from among the people. You need to decide what those qualifications and what those characteristics look like. And in Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 through 27, you see, you see Moses taking on the role of making sure that he appointed qualified leaders to help him judge the issues among God's people. But then not only that, you see it being restated in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13. And it talks about really three main characteristics there that we're not going to talk about today. But it's interesting that Moses knew that if he was going to put people over the put men over the people who were qualified to lead, there had to be some measuring tools that he utilized to make sure that the people that he were appointing were going to actually have the character. It's interesting that the characteristics for eldership, there's only one practical qualification for practice, but everything else has to do with character. Even when Moses appointed him, he talked about men of wisdom and, and, and experience. And so, and so it's interesting that he's talking about, he, he wants them to understand God's law or they wouldn't have been able to judge. But, but, but he emphasized character because everybody in Israel had to memorize um, the, the Torah. Everybody had to get that in their system. But now he wanted to say, okay, as you got that in your system and you become experienced in it, what I want you to do is I want you to have the right character that comes with your ability to judge the people of God. And so over in the New Testament, I'm just giving a little bit of background on this understanding of eldership so we won't think you, we pull, you won't think we pull, just pulled this out of our hip. The apostles in the early church, one of their most important tasks when they planted churches was to make sure that the last thing that they did after a two to three year period, mainly you, it was usually two, two plus years of that time, they would appoint elders from among the people who had been developed and who had been discipled, who had heard the gospel, who had been walked from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity among the community, and people kind of began to view them as spiritual leaders. In other words, when the people gathered together, their voice was heard in a particular way. Even, when, even behind closed doors, people wanted to, they, they kind of looked to this group of people as spiritual leaders. And so you'll see in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, them appointing elders um, in, the, in Iconium, Lister, and Derby. You'll see in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, I left you, Titus, in Crete, in order that you may set in order what remains. <laughs> I like that. They had done all of this other work of the ministry. And he said, before we leave, there's only one thing left that we have to do, and that is appoint elders in every city. Notice he said elders, not elder. Notice he said one bishop over the entire thing. He didn't say that. He says a community of qualified men to lead God's church in every place that the church gathers within these cities. Are y'all with me? And so this is, a, this is a very, very, very important thing that we're looking at as a church and as a people of God. And now we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I know y'all was like, when are you going to get there? But before we dive deeply into these verses, I want to read them. But you got to understand the context of what Paul was writing this about. Look in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons 
not to teach any different doctrines or strange doctrines. I like the way NASB says that, strange stuff, stuff that we wouldn't even be down with. He says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Wow. (laughs) So Paul, this is what Paul is doing. This is powerful. So the context of Paul writing 1 Timothy is to encourage gospel promotion and gospel preservation. In other words, there were, there were cats in the community that were teaching stuff that wasn't even in the scriptures or just playing around with doctrines, right? And so Paul said, and he warned the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, verses 1, basically the whole chapter, he warned them in tears that many were going to come up among them as wolves and try to challenge what Paul has put in place. And so Paul left, told Timothy to go to Ephesus, and then what he did is he wrote him a letter to let him know what should be done. And so he says, I want to, I'm writing you, Timothy, so that you can sit some guys down from eldership that have been badly appointed. That's, that's what the background is for this passage. And he, and he says, not only that, he says, now I want you to begin to re-inject gospel DNA into the Ephesian church. He says, because the gospel DNA that you and I and, and our community of leaders work so hard on implanting, you, we got to make sure that that is preserved and you got to make sure that this happens. And one of the ways in which gospel preservation happens is in a very practical application that is given in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and that's the appointing of elders. Elders in the church are a means of gospel preservation for the church. There are means of grace given by God to make sure that God's people are saturated and live out the reality of God's way of thinking and God's way of doing things empowered by the cross. And so he says, I want us to make sure <coughs> that, we're pro- that we're making progress in stewarding the gospel correctly. He says... He says, rather, he said, these cats aren't worried about (coughs) this. He said, I want them to be worried about the stewardship from God that is by faith. And the only thing that is the stewardship of God that is by faith is the gospel. Very, very powerful. And you'll hear Paul saying, I've been given the stewardship of the gospel. So now we go to chapter 3. And we see him now giving him a layout of this. Verse 1, we're going to read on to verse 7, and we're just going to walk through it a little bit. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, Not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, as you look at these characteristics, I want to encourage three people groups here. I want to encourage people that are looking for qualified leadership. I I want to also encourage men. I want to encourage men because these characteristics, I don't believe, can just be simplified to only elders having them and no one else having them. I I think that if these are going to be the spiritual guardians and examples of God's flock, they they are supposed to be attainable and valuable attributes that any manly man should have. And so Paul is saying to them, Also, these as examples, I want you to set the standard. I want there to be a standard set amongst God's men 
When people look at them, there is an expectation of something that should be held to them, all men. But he said, it's, but the elders are supposed to be bright shining stars of that example, not stars as in superstardom or 15 minutes of fame, but I'm talking about shining bright as in star in outer space, that there's going to be an importance that this be held in high regard and as a, a, and not even a superlative. This is not a superlative. And God graces anyone who he calls. In other words, God doesn't set standards and say, oh, you'll never get there. No, God graces people in these areas. Now, what's beautiful about these qualifications, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, ladies, you're looking for a husband. <laughs> you need, you need to, now some of these he can't have yet. He just can't. He shouldn't. <clears throat> but most of them. 99.9% of them he needs to have. And so you need to even be saying, man, he needs to have some of this in his, in his soul. And so the elders even are supposed to be people that guys want to mimic their character like. And women say, I would like the way he is. I hope that I can find a man or a man finds me rather. Amen. Um, I ain't asking nobody out in Jesus' name. I'm going to be asked something. Hallelujah to the living God. And so, and, 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 and so I hope the one that approaches me, I have the grid matrix. Like I was watching the last part of the matrix last night, and them, little, them little things was coming down, the little green letters. See, that's what the word of God need to be for you when you're looking at somebody. They're coming all up to you. To, I see a matrix of the devil, or I see a matrix. What's that? And so... So you want to see the right stuff, you know what I'm saying? I see just a matrix, you know, how Neo can see stuff, you know what I'm saying? You need to be able to see stuff. Amen. And so, and so, and so, that, and so that's, that's what we want to look at as we dive into this. And so my first point, <coughs> qualified elders is one of God's means to promote the gospel. To promote the gospel. Look at these, the, what he says here. He says, the saying is trustworthy. <coughs> I love this because the trustworthy statements are all over the New Testament. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15, you'll see it in, uh, of course, here, first uh, Timothy four, nine, second Timothy two, 11 and Titus three, eight. The trustworthy statements were kind of for the Christian church, um, singings or sequinines uh, that they would utilize as a commonly held phrase or group of sentences, clauses that was memorized by Christians to remember things that were key that the apostles wanted them to remember. So when he said this, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. So he's literally, he's not telling Timothy this for the first time. He's reminding Timothy of the trustworthy statement. And the trustworthy statement is in verse 1. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so, and so, and so aspires here is interesting. It means to stretch your hand towards. Now, some people would look at that and say, man, Cat's trying to be up on some self-exaltation. No, he's, he's not talking about self-exaltation. He's talking, he's talking about, what, what he's talking about here is he's talking about it's a good thing that men should desire this role with the characteristics that come upon it. If it's a godly desire, the assumption is, is that it's a solid movement towards the role. And so as, as, as it's a solid movement towards the role, it's very, 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 very important to, to, uh, to Timothy to even look for guys that aspire for it, not guys that don't want to be a part of it. But then he says to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That word desires there is an interesting word. It's the, it's the word usually used for lust, epithumeo, which means to desire with a strong desire. Now, it's not using it in the lustful sense now. It's using it in another sense. And so Paul says overseer. Say overseer. Now, he uses this word as really a synonym of three words. Sometimes you'll see it translated in diff different ways. You'll see it in 1 Timothy 4.14. You'll see it being translated as a presbytery. Um, the same word is used in 1 Timothy 5.17 for elders. Then you'll see another word for pastors. 
Now, for most people, they think that oh, they think that bishops, pastors, and elders are three different people groups. They're not. They're the same people. So, in other words, it's, it's, it's synonymous words used to express the same office, but express it in different ways. And so it's emphasizing different things. When you look at the word for overseer or oversight here in this passage, it's a a word that means um, authority and ruling. It it emphasizes, and not Gentile ruling, like, what's what's that? Ain't nobody ruling me. No, that's not what we're saying. We're talking about biblical rulership, which is actually servitude. (laughs) So ruling someone in God's eyes means serving them. Not being, not them being your flunkies. Amen, lights and walls. And so when he says oversight, he's talking about, he's talking about ruling and he's talking about authority set up in place. Uh oh, the bad A word. That's a curse word in our culture. But yes, authority is a biblical term. <laughs> and so these men are set up to be authorities in the flock. But then you have another word, presbuteros. That the first one was Episcopos, the second one is Presbuteros, which emphasized a community of qualified men. It, 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 it emphasizes a community of, of, of people who are mutually, mutually accountable and mutually responsible for the care of God's people. And so now, now you can't have somebody saying they're an overseer. The same word for overseer can be translated bishop. Bishop. So, 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 bishop, I can be called a bishop. I just don't use it because of the connotations of it. The guys being appointed next week can be called bishops. I can be Bishop Eric Mason, you know what I'm saying? Had my little collar and my little drape on, you know what I'm saying? But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like, but, like, but, 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 but it's, it's really no difference. It's not an oversight of oversights, so to speak. But then elders, of course, it, it also, it also still has the sense of ruling here. A community of co-equal guys even though everybody's not the same because God has wired them differently and gifted them differently and even exalted them differently. And so although they are equal and accountable, everyone takes on specific roles within the flock to engage and love and care for the people of God. So a church should have, an assembly should be moving towards having a community of qualified leaders who are equal in their processing of the direction and development and depth of the people of God and the church. And and they are not just counselors for the senior guy. They are guys who take responsibility to take mutual responsibility to pray for and to have a passion for and to shepherd God's people. But then the last word, shepherd, means to care. It emphasizes care, protection, and leadership. Care, protection, and leadership. And so these synonymous terms are very important to kind of express this office and this role. And then he goes and then he goes into personal character. That's the sub point of this. He's going to talk about first the personal character of the elder. This is very important. He, he starts with where in the heck is his character at? And so here he starts off with a controlling adjective here that permeates all the rest of the characteristics that you're going to see in this passage. He says, he says, the, he says, and therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Say above reproach. This is, this is a lethal term. <laughs> it's lethal. It's the linchpin for the entire thing. You can be as gifted as you want to be, but if this one is absent, it's a shutdown. Being above reproach means to be unimpeachable. That means that no one can bring an offense upon this leader, this leader in a way that would affect people's ability to watch him lead. In other words, there's nothing in the way that's a barrier. I'm not talking about personal things. I'm talking about things that are clear and it's almost a pink elephant, so to speak. For most people, when they watch that leader lead. See, above reproach means moral conduct is blameless. Above criticism, deep criticism. We already said unimpeachable. And what's interesting is this idea of 
above being above reproach, it permeates all of his attributes or his character, just as God's glory permeates all of his attributes. God is glorious in everything that he is. He is glorious grace. He's glorious holiness. He's glorious eternality. He's glorious perfection. He's glorious. He's glorious in everything that he is. And glory and holiness permeates all of his attributes. And just as glory and holiness permeates all of the attributes of God, so should being above reproach permeate all of the characteristics of the elder. I like calling these characteristics and not qualifications. Because the assumption is, is that the person is already this on some level and you're just bringing them to the table because God has uniquely graced and exalted them to be in the role that they're being appointed to. They don't get in the role, then try to work on it. That's like getting married without any premarital counseling. Oh, Lord. And so above reproach, irreproachable. And then he begins by talking, and it's interesting that he puts this in the character section. When he talks about being above reproach, <coughs> he says, Mias gynakos andra. Powerful. Mias gynakos andra. Husband of a one wife. Now, many people think this points to polygamy and all of that, and I think it would exonerate polygamy. Um, I, I don't think that an elder has to be married to be an elder. I, 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 think, I think that it's good, and I think that if somebody's looking to be married, they should wait to be an elder until they're married so that they don't get married and they be fumbling in the first six months, and people are like, you know, and you don't want that to happen. So you, 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 you don't want that to happen, so you kind of want, you kind of usually, for the most part, want an elder to be um, 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 married before and have some track record within the marriage before they are appointed to the role because it's easy to exalt people, it's harder to remove them. And so when we talk about being, being the husband of one wife, many point to this in many aspects. There are two things that I believe we want to emphasize today. Number one, it's male. Andros is used, not anthropos. And so here at Epiphany Fellowship, we've lost people because of this. We believe that everything in the church is free for any, anyone to do. Um, but but, the, the, but, the, but for, for, for this aspect of um, leadership, this is only for qualified male leaders. That's number one. Number two, the emphasis of this in everybody. I, I mean, I've, I've, even, I've sank this into me also, but I, I, as I looked at even commentators after I did my own exegesis, it seems to promote faithfulness. Mias gynakos andros means literally one woman man. It don't mean one at a time. As some silly commentators have said, um, it, it, means, it, it means one woman man. The emphasis of one woman man means faithful to his wife. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to her. A desire for her. Eyes only for her. And fights to only have eyes for her. And it's noticeable to others. Above reproach in his faithfulness to his wife. Everything that I say is, means above reproach in it. In other words... It's almost abnormal in the depth of God's grace on his marital relationship. So he begins in talking about above reproach by dealing with the marriage of the pastor, the community of leaders. What is their relationship with their spouse like? Because their relationship with their spouse will be a barometer for their character if they're dissatisfied with their spouse then it's going to impact their satisfaction in the ministry. And so, and so it's very, very important here that we look at this understanding and have a passion to see this idea of comprehensive marital faithfulness in the mind and passion of this. And, and, and most even commentators even say that it's even emphasized in their sexual life. The emphasis is even almost Almost, it has even in it a, a, a force towards sexual faithfulness to the spouse. And it goes back to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23. He drinks water, fresh water from his own cistern, and drinks water from his own well. He does not allow his streams to be dispersed in the streets. And so, and so, and so in other words, he seeks to fulfill passion 
with his wife and his wife alone in that particular area. But it's also comprehensive commitment, not just sexual commitment. But then, even though that is a good thing, um, next point, um, sober-minded. This is powerful. It means to lack spiritual drunkenness. He's not a goofball. He's not, a, I mean, like, 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 like here is interesting. Sober-minded points to real simply he's spiritually mature. There's a maturity and fragrance and a refinedness to the, to the dude. He's like, there's a fine wine to his spirituality. There's, there's a great coffee, you know, a foreign coffee. You know, if y'all know about coffee, see, coffee, you know you got a good coffee when after it's brewed, right after it's brewed, you look over top of it and there's speckles of oil on it. If there's speckles of oil on it, that means it is a, it is a, I mean, it's a good coffee. That's what the life of the elder should be like. His spiritual life should be mature. There should be a refinement and, and, a, and, and kind of like, not a standoff, it's not, a swa- not a swagger like standing offness, but, but, but a refinement because God has taken him through some stuff and he survived. That, 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 that he's dealt with challenges well. That he's dealt with struggles well. That he deals with people well. That he deals with his soul well. That he's pursuing God regularly. That he's always seeking God's way of thinking and God's way of doing things. Even if they're different, he won't say it. He'll just think it and ask God to transform them to his mindset versus keeping his own mindset. See, that's spiritual maturity. Not just throwing stakes, but able to chew and swallow them himself. He has depth. The bucket can go to the bottom of his feet, how deep his soul is in his spiritual maturity. It emphasizes also he's been discipled. Someone has walked with him. Someone has walked from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity with him and has walked with And so he knows what it's like for somebody to pour in him. And he received it. Maturity. But then it says self-control. Self-control. He's not only sober-minded, but he's self, he has self-control. <coughs> self-control means to have your passions under control. Self-control means to put your passions on a leash. Powerful. Powerful. Self-control here is, is a very, very powerful term. It says, as having the ability to curb desires and impulses so as pr- to produce a measured and orderly life. Some have translated this word discipline in it. In other words, a discipline, they're not unorganized, always late. Being late is a character issue. If you're always late, that's a character issue. If you're never ready, that's a character issue. That means you don't have self-control. That means you watched Good Morning America too long before you left. If you're watching Reaches and Kelly, you're already, you already late. So now you're just being funky, dirty, nasty, Dirty socks after the football game trifling. It's not a bunch of, oh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, a discipline. A discipline about them. A disciplinary ethic. An organization about him. It's maturity, man. It's, it's, it's being a doggone man. Grown up. Adult. Spiritually and naturally. You're not still a doggone kid. Self-control. Yes. Self-disciplined in one's freedom. Self-restrained in all passions and desires. It's interesting. Avoidance of extremes and careful consideration for responsible action. So not making quick decisions. Not just say the first thing comes in their mind. Oh, my dad. Lack of self-control means you just say anything, you do anything, you don't have that type of life. Now, now the next word is a cool word. This is a cool word right there. I like this one. I wish I could just, just, just eisegete this a little bit because of the word that is useful, but I can't. But it's such a smooth word. Respectable. Now, this word is smooth. This is, this is I, I don't know if y'all remember the man called Hawk back in the day. Lost all y'all. He was a cool dude. Mom, do you remember? I know you remember mom, do. Um, he's a cool dude. What's interesting about this word is this the word is, is cosmeo. Cosmos. 
choose to talk about well-arranged. Not just in gear, like he can, he fly, he can dress, you know what I'm saying? He blinging with earrings, not that. <laughs> That's the bad way to use this one. Respectable here talks about a well-arranged life. It points to discipline, but it's also God graced him to put things in his life in order. It, it, it evokes admiration from others and delight from others that the arrangement and orderliness of this manly man's life is commendable by other men who are unorganized and displaced and all over the place. They say, I want to be settled in my soul like those dudes. I, I want my life, like, I'm, I'm, I, I just need some, I need to be, I need to be settled. I need to plant my feet. I need, in other words, this guy's not flighty. And the lack of flightiness about him is attractive to God's people for spiritual development and what to look for and what to be. Respectable. And able to be respected in such a way that disrespect garners frustration. In other words, you don't even feel like you can do that. Respectable. Having a high regard for, if you ask anybody about the character and depth of the person, they will be able to vouch for it. Hospitable. 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 Show care for strangers, of course, and also God's people. To show care for God's people and also strangers. So that, 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 that this means, this, this, this means, this means that when people come over, um, that they feel welcome, not like they're ready to leave every moment you're in the crib. That they don't like people. Just when people are around, they're kind of like, man, yeah. I tell you, man, what you got going tomorrow? You know when somebody asks you that, it's time to go. Now, some of y'all need to be asked that sometimes at the long part of it. But I don't like the front end of it. Like, it's been five minutes, and you're like, tag, man. Man, so this weekend, you know, you're just asking questions about, you know, that's, that's when somebody say, well, so what's going on? That means what's happening right now is about the end. <laughs> the whole time they're with you, they're going like this. They're not hospitable. Because they're like, you're like, it's a struggle to be here with you, but I'm doing it because I have to, and you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> like, let's get this over with so I can remain qualified. <laughs> <laughs> Hospitable, but it, 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 it means that people, like, it, like I'm one of my favorite mentors is a dude named um, um, a Pastor Hawkins. Pastor Hawkins, like, Pastor Hawkins, when you come around Pastor Hawkins, he's, he's kind of, he's like 6'4", and he's a burly dude. And when you come in the room with him, it just feel like the room hugs you, you know. I, I, I can't even explain it. It's not no cuddle cushion stuff. It's just, it's just this sense of care, the aroma of care is around him. And, and it makes you want to stay around them. And they had, and this dude was so hospitable that his assistants had to help him get work done. So they had to give him time limits with people because he was just so wired to be around people. And so he had to get help, like get him to work on the message and get him to working on like the other stuff he has to do because he can't spend all day with you. Very, very hospitable. That's the sense of that. But then also he has to be apt to teach, able to teach skill in communicating God's word to others. Skilled in explaining God's word. This, this, this mainly is not just, and not just for the public teaching of the word only, even though that's a part of it. I mean, and that's a big, 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 big part of it. But also, it expresses and extends itself to the, the person that's able to make a doggone disciple. A disciple. Able to walk with people and usher them from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. In other words, if someone that wants to be in this role, you got to ask, who's been impacted by them? Because who's been impacted by you says something about your character. And if you look, Paul, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or chapter 2, chapter 2, he says, you are my letters. He says, you are my letters. He said, he said, he said, if, if, he said, if you want to know my resume, look at the people that I poured my life into. And so if you want to know whether someone's qualified for eldership, you look at the people who they spent time pouring into who said, yes, that person poured into me and see the development of their life from when they first got around them. Able to teach. Powerful. Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. This is not spiritual drunkard. This is literal drunkardness. He's not 
um, sipping syrup. You know what I'm saying? Getting, getting nice, getting his buzz on with your nene. You know what I'm saying? No buzz. No buzz, no, no drunkardness. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there can't be moderate drinking. He doesn't have to be an abstentionist. Some people make this abstentionist and all of that. That's, that's not what this is saying. It says not drunkard. So we want to emphasize that. Now, then, this is the interesting one. Um, that this is the one that God had to work on me on for a long time. Not violent. It means abrasive, a striker, a bully. Now, I wasn't a bully. But it means <laughs> this will give itself, to, in other words, it gives itself over to Gentile lordship. And by the way, he's not violent. Always in somebody's grill, lighting them up about something. Um, that not, not even, I'm not even talking about something spiritual. I'm just talking about just always, you always feel like there's an abrasiveness and a hatchet about the personality of the guy. This always out to get. It's like, dang, when I walk away, I just feel beat up. I feel injured. Like, not wounds of a friend injured. Um, I'm talking about discouraged from Christian life injured. So not violent. But it says, but gentle. It, it means to be gracious. In other words, the elder should give people the benefit of the doubt. Not always assume the worst about the people of God. Gracious. And even when you hear the worst, you balance grace and truth. Oh, y'all should listen to that. See, if, you, if you're just on the truth end of things all the time, you want to tell people what's wrong with them. But when you're on the grace side, you want to apply you want to apply numbing medicine so that it's going to pinch, but it's not. See, I remember I went to the dentist for the first time at 20 years old. You know, I grew up in the hood. We didn't go to the dentist. You know what I'm saying? That's why many of us in the hood, we got raggedy teeth. Only thing that helped us was the fluoride in the water from the drinking faucet. That's brushing your teeth and flossing was all I did. So I went, I went, I remember I first went to the dentist. And the dentist said, what, have you been to the dentist before? And um, I said, he, I said, nah. He said, well, man, you got some strong teeth. He said, this, you got some real, real strong teeth. He said, but you do got like eight cavities. I was like, dang. And, you know, I, I never went also. We, we didn't have insurance, but also I didn't want to go because I was scared because I watched different strokes and stuff. And I, I knew what they went through when they went. So, I, you know, I grew up on that. So, you know, the Jeffersons and what's happening. But when they went to the dentist, everybody was scared. So I was like, I'm not going. Man, and I, I mean, I mean, I, um, <laughs> I, I can't, re I, I can remember how, um, when I went, the guy said, you know, I'm going to numb this area and it's going to pinch. And when he, when he did it, it's, I said, he said, I said, mm -hmm. but first he rubbed some strawberry stuff on it. It was good too. And then he, and then, and then he hit it, then he hit it in there. Then I heard, I felt like water going through and it was a pinch. And then all of a sudden he put this mask on and my, I started looking around. Like this, I said, "Hi, uh, teacher," and you know I wasn't doing that. But I was sitting there, and he was just drilling away. He was just drilling away at all of these needed areas. And as he was drilling, what he did was he took care of the impact of the drilling before he started drilling. See, when you balance grace and truth together, it's not just to make people feel pain. But he wants to make it better. But the good part about it is where he drilled, he refilled it with something. He didn't leave it empty. You see, 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 a, see, see, somebody that balances both grace and truth hurt you for the right reasons, remove the right things, but put the right stuff back in place. Gracious. Gracious. Not quarrelsome. Not, and this means not to be controversial. Not one to seek a fight. And create tension between God's people. Not edgy or quick to lose temper, but peaceable. An initiator of peace. Where there are fractions in relationships, <coughs> he's willing to initiate peace. Marked by freedom from strife and disorder. Not loose with his tongue. <coughs> so not quarrelsome. The Bible says a kind word turns away wrath. I, it, it's very, very important that the, that the elder is able to make his words kind in its character. But then it says, not a lover of money, 
Not a lover of money. That means he's not marked by greed. I don't see how some of these guys get around this. Like, I, don't, I don't see how. I, like, I don't see how you get around not a lover of money and you talk about it all the time. And God being the means for it. So it's anthropocentric and demonically centered, not Jesus-centered, and benefiting from him. But uh, uh, In other words, the Holy Spirit is at our disposal. We're not at his. So they're marked by greed, covetous. What, what you got, Doc? How many you got, Doc? How many come and die? I got your doc. They never content. Never content. Coveting everybody what God is doing at other churches. This means greedy. But then this is the beastly one. And we are going to go over. Crib character is the next point. Crib character. The crib, what the house is like. Manages his own household well. This is powerful. Means to, this idea of managing one's household well is to exercise a position of leadership, to rule even in the home, to care for, to give aid to, to give comprehensive oversight to someone, something, and someplace, i.e. his house. And it's specifically of the people in the house, not the structure of the house itself, even though it's a byproduct of how you care for the people. And notice the emphasis is on well. In other words, not he just manages his house. It, it says well. There's an exemplary nature to the culture of this man of God's, these men of God's homes. They're commendable. They're honorable. They're, they're appropriately arranged in the way the souls of the wife and the children are. The assumptions of this text is that the husband has a ministry of presence, that he's present, he's home, he's there, he's there. He's not at the ministry helping people all the time and always has to kiss his kids goodnight after they're always asleep. He's present. He has a ministry of presence. He and his wife have pillow talk. They talk. They're able to connect. They manage distances between one another in their relationship. The children are growing up with a solid view of manhood and womanhood and what it's going to be like. The sons are like, I can't wait till I get older because I'm going to do what daddy does. I'm going to set this tradition. Ministry of spiritual formation. He initiates prayer. Wife don't ever have to, well, honey, we don't pray enough. Honey, we need to get in prayer. Honey, can we pray together? He, not, he's, he initiates that. Initiates pouring into her. Ministry of gospel promotion in the home, promoting the gospel. He doesn't leave spiritual development to his wife, even though he oversees it. That doesn't mean he micromanages the house, because the wife is a helper, and therefore she's qualified to lead in the home also. However, his leading of the home motivates and gives energy to her ability to do her role, manages the household well. He sets his wife up to win in the crib. Sets her up to win. Sets her up to win, not fail. Resources her. Ministry of family vision. In other words, the family know where they're going spiritually. Psalm 127, Psalm 128. He's setting a trajectory for his family. He got spiritual plans for his kids. He, he has ideas of how Christ can be formed in his kids. He knows their faults and how he can shepherd them and work with them. He's reading, trying to learn how to be a better parent. Got meant, in other words, he's trying to work out what it looks like to pour into my family and pour. I got date night with the wife, he's saying. He, he gets the babysitter sometimes. She doesn't always get the babysitter. Ministry of economic stewardship also. He provides. Real simple. He provides. I know guys, I, I go to seminary, and they let their wife take, you know, I, I struggle. I'm, just me, I would struggle with that. You know, I, I just struggle with the wife do all of the, like, I don't know about that. And I struggle with people that allow their in-laws to give too much, like buy a house for them, three of them. You know what I'm saying? Unless you're gifting it to us and leaving us a heritage. Amen. 
The Bible says, leave me a heritage. <laughs> However, the, sh- the challenge is going to be, the challenge is going to be, and this is very important, and this is important for very young couples too, as I'm even talking about eldership, is sometimes, men, you have to push off provision that you need in order to sometimes allow God to provide through you so that you can develop household respect for things coming through you and not from everywhere else. Because that's the way the wife develops trust in your leadership. Now, I'm not talking about times of need and nothing. There's a famine and you can't get a job. I'm not talking about those seasons where we're trying to get help. I'm, I'm talking about normal times. Just normal times. You got to get you a job, bro. But this guy ain't trying to get a job. This guy, this guy is working. Or if he's in between jobs... He's managed things so that the in-between job season's not too bad. I mean, manages household well. Deep, deep stuff. Deep challenging stuff. Challenging, boy, for all of us. For all of us. And the emphasis of this, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So what that means is his kids aren't crazy. Real simple. He ain't got baby kids. Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Babies. Baby kids. I mean, they just go across the wall and just scratch the wall off. You know what I'm saying? Turning the fan on, putting the other kid's finger in it. You know, they just rug rats. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the windows open at the end of the gathering. They're like, come here, let's try to push him. You know, like, like in other words, just rug rats. Don't listen to nobody. You know, come here. Ah! It's run off. Your mama, you know, just raggedy. And then when, but, but the issue here is having them under control. Come here. Mama, look over there. <laughs> Just break down. Submissive. There's a submissiveness. And I'm not being legalistic because we know that rugrats got sin natures, right? But, but there's a sense in which God has grace and even given the ability for the parent to. And, and one of the things I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged by that, which to see parents who are able to minister and have their kids under control. That's a powerful thing. If kids are not under control, don't listen to mommy and dad. They tell them to do it, and then they, they immediately don't listen, or they got to keep saying, they, they all, always got to go to the whooping. That's not under control. It says, if he does not manage his own household, well, how will he do with the church? It says, the house is a reflection of what it will be like in the church. It's true, y'all. And so what we want to do by the Lord's grace is have healthy households across the board, but also the, the household of the elder has to be superlatively healthy because it's a reflection of his ability to lead in the church and to do that. If he doesn't care for his kids, he's not going to care for God's people. Now, we do have extremes with many of us as ministers where we get imbalanced and have to be very, very careful of sp- having seasons where we spend more time with God's people and have to catch up with the family. That happens every now and then. But that should, that, that should, that, like, that's not even, like, that, there, should, there shouldn't be a, there shouldn't be a noticeable care. Children shouldn't look at mom and dad, especially dad in this case, and, and be jealous of their relationship with the church. Manages his household well. And even, and this is the issue, even if there's an imbalance where he takes care of the church well, but not his household his household is going to explode, therefore removing his ability to practice his leadership in the church. Then it says, not a new convert, not new to the faith, not a neophyte, not a neophyte. That's the Greek word here, neophyte. He said, oh, he'll be puffed up and conceited, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is interesting, two, mean, two meanings here. It means it, 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 it's, it's two understandings of this. The condemnation of the devil could refer to Satan's condemnation that he got because of pride and why he fell. It could be that. Could be that. I, 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 the fact that they called him a neophyte, he's a new believer, so he can't be falling into the condemnation of Satan by being separated from God because he's an authentic believer. Because it's already said he's, he's a neophyte. But it also could mean in the same sense in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, I have handed Alexander and Demas over, uh, uh, Herminius over to Satan in order that they may be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, these were probably two guys that were doing what Paul was telling Timothy to tell dudes not to do in verse 3 and 4. Therefore, he says, if you appoint a young buck who's, a, who's new to the faith or, 
or systemically, spiritually immature to the role, what's going to happen is, is the devil is going to be after him and he will fall into condemnation. How would he fall into condemnation? He will, be, he will fall under the need to be handed over to Satan to be dealt with. Because, he'll, because his puffed upness, his conceit, and his pride will lead him into all types of sins. But then it says he has good community character. Good community character. His great personal character, crib character, and community character must be well thought of by outsiders. May not fall into disgrace, says. Must be, movie must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so this person should have a, a, good, a good reputation among non-Christians must be able to have a viable argument against the character of his, and of his practices with non-Christians, a reputation that makes way for the mission of God in the word of God, being a good neighbor. He should be a good neighbor. Now, we're not talking about times of persecution where people just hate Christians because he assumes that. But he's talking about they can't get you for the right things because you're wrong even in God's eyes and unbelievers' eyes. That's what he's talking about here. But what's interesting is this idea of eldership, as we close, didn't start with didn't start with men. God eternally had in his mind a passion for eldership. In Revelation chapter 4, it says that there were 24 thrones, and upon them sat 24 elders. God has elders in heaven. I don't know what their role is. All I knew is their role, they, they figured that this was their role was, based on, based on Revelation is to have on the crowns of their worthiness of eldership and take them off and throw them at the feet of Jesus and worship him. So even in heaven, the elders that are there are Jesus-centered. They're, they're looking at him and humbling themselves before him because of the, them being in his presence and them being seated where they are. They know it's not merely because their qualifications to get there got them there. But they, they understand that the one who qualifies them got them there. And so Jesus Christ is spoken of as the chief elder. Now he's the bishop. He's the one that's worthy to wear the fat robe with the collar. He's the one that's worthy to be, I'll shine his shoes any day even though he won't need it. I'll get his water any day, even though he won't need it. He could just go like this and a couple appear and water will be in it. He doesn't have to do that. So he says, let me do that. Let me do that for you, though. He says, what you want to drink? Fruit, you're going to have high C in heaven. He's going to just snap his finger. The elder is going to give you some high C, some mystic, some peach tea, some coffee. Amen. He serves us. And he earned his ability to serve us through his death. Through his death. He's qualified to be elder and savior. He's qualified to be prophet, priest, and king because he had the character depth that earned it. He so earned it. When you earn something in God's eyes, you really earned it. God ain't like, God, Jesus didn't need blood to make him worthy. So he did it by his own merit. That's crazy. He did it by his own merit and was the only one worthy to meritoriously earn his role as king, elder, and priest, and prophet, and king. And so as we look at the role of elder, we look first to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look first to him as the central chief elder. If there's any elder that you never hear him talk about Jesus, you never see his life reflect Jesus, then he wants to be Jesus. <laughs> it's about him. And we humbly, hopefully, submit ourselves to the one who is the chief shepherd who will come back and hold us accountable for all of this. When we stand before the beamer, he will be asking us questions. He won't have to, he will look at videotape testimonies, he'll pull up lives. He'll look at your crib quotient and put a crib quotient next to, and he'll have a graph, crib church. And he will measure the level of depth in your home against the measure of depth in the local church that you were an elder in. 
So if you want to be an elder and you think it's just about getting the opportunity to teach and tell some people something what to do, you know not what you ask. This is not something, this ain't a fly roll. I can tell you that right now. It ain't fly, it ain't cute. The microphone really, <laughs> oh Lord, if I had time to just give a testimony of the microphone measured up against closed doors. <laughs> the time it takes to shepherd and to love people. This ain't glamorous. Getting dirty, hearing people's issues, getting fearing for your life because you're hearing sins all the time. Asking your wife crazy questions. Am I crazy? Am I okay? What am I doing? You, I mean, it, it's not something to be taken. It's not a cool role. It's not a smooth role. These cats lighting candles beside them and stand up. Like, I ain't cool unless you, all you're doing is preaching. But if you're really trying to walk in eldership, it's a monster. It's a monster. And not to be taken on as something that you, I'm and you can't, there's no way to know how challenging it can be to be an elder until you're one. However, this is not a glamorous role. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you now. It is not a glamorous role, but it's one of the most rewarding. It's rewarding to see people get shepherded. It's rewarding to see where people develop because of the work of elders. It's a glorious work, but there, will, there are days that you will have millions of questions and if your character is not being worked on by Jesus and in community with others, you're going to fall into all types of pains. That's so I'm just telling you. Men, aspire to it. But don't look at the image you think you have in your mind. Because the image you think is in your mind ain't the image of what this is really like. Father. Father, we, we love you.